Good morning. Our reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 2 and can be found on page 1218 of the Church Bibles. That's 1218 of the Church Bibles. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. morning. Before we look together at the uh, passage that uh, Luke read so clearly to us, let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures and thank you that they are not just words upon pages, but they are light, they are love, they are freedom for us. And we pray that they would be so this morning, before we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what it is that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning. What is it that gives your life purpose each day? Those are very important questions. And uh, this past week, a friend sent me a link to an online lecture by the professor of clinical psychology at Ghent University, Matthias Desme. And he said two things that really rang bells with me. First, he said, we are social creatures and we need real time and space, not just virtual relationships. And they are essential for our mental well-being. And secondly, those relationships are the things that enable us to establish meaning-making in our lives. Without others we not only become isolated, but we also become purposeless. Now, it rang bells because that's rather a good summary of what the Apostle Peter says in the section of his letter that we are looking at this morning. He writes about people connecting, and he writes about people with real purpose. And I want us first 
to look at uh, what he says about connecting. So the first main point of two this morning is that God's people have been chosen to be built together into a spiritual house. And so he starts with the focus on Christ in verse 4. And he says there, as you come to Christ. Well, he actually says, when you come to him, that living stone. But just trust me for a few moments that he is referring to the person of Jesus there because I want, first of all, to emphasize what he's actually saying in that phrase, come to Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you have never come to Christ at all, you've never had that first encounter with him as the one who died for you to redeem you, as Barbara was explaining so clearly earlier on, then I would love to talk with you about that afterwards. But that's not primarily what Peter is talking about here, though it does include it. The word he uses here is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that's used to describe the coming to God, either to hear him speak, as in Leviticus 9.5, or to offer sacrifices to him, as in Exodus 12.48. And it's often rendered in the English translation as to stand before the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, people were warned not to get too close to God. In Joshua 3, when Israel was about to cross the Jordan, the people were told to follow the priests who were carrying the ark, which was the symbol of God's presence. But Joshua warns them not to get too close to it. He says, keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Now, I learned this week that that's about a kilometer. Now, Peter tells us that we can draw near to Christ. We can come right up close, and we will be safe. And Peter should know, because when he first saw the miraculous power of Christ, he cried out to Jesus, keep away from me, because I am a sinful man. He was awestruck at the power of Christ, but recognized within himself that he could not come close to it, and he was afraid. But Jesus said to him, as he says to us, do not be afraid, because from now on, you will fish for people. I'm going to give you a new purpose in your life, Peter. And that's what he does for us. And the, verse, uh, the, the tense of that um, uh, verb in verse 4 is not the imperative come, as the translation in our church Bibles has it, but it's actually the present participle, coming. The sense of it is, as you continually keep coming to Christ, you are continually being built up. So let's then ask ourselves, how often this week have we been coming to Christ? How frequently have we been drawing near to him 
especially to worship him? Those are searching questions, aren't they? Uh, And they're about a spiritual discipline that Peter takes for granted in the lives of his readers, who were under huge persecution, like those, say, in Myanmar or Afghanistan or China today. Coming to Christ, you are being built into a spiritual house. And the more we keep coming to him, the more we keep being built up into his temple, the church. Now at this point, we are going to need to unpack why Peter refers to Jesus in that first verse, uh, verse four there of our passage, as the living stone. And one of the things that you soon get to grips with when you start reading the Bible is that it's absolutely chock-a-block of imagery and symbols. Not the clanging sort, but the cipher sort. And Peter heard firsthand Jesus use this imagery of the stone in an incident that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. He heard Jesus tell a story about a vineyard owner whose son was shockingly murdered by his tenants. And then Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, that Peter quotes here in verse 6 of our passage. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in Mark's account, in chapter 12, verse 12, we read this, Jesus' opponents looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken that parable against them. They were the tenants in the parable, and Jesus was both the murdered son and also the stone which the builders, the religious leaders of the day, had rejected. The living stone is clearly Jesus, rejected by humans, as Peter, who was there, writes in verse 4, and of whom Isaiah prophesied, he was despised and rejected of men, in Isaiah 53, from which Peter quotes later on in chapter 2. Now, there is a whole raft of imagery, in fact, throughout the Bible about Christ being the rock including the astonishing statement uh, by the Apostle Paul when he's commenting on the story of how Moses, when the people of Israel were in danger of dying of thirst in the wilderness, struck the rock in the desert and living water, life-giving water, came out of it. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, the rock was Christ. And that's just one example of uh, of many. And we haven't time to explore this theme further this morning. But since two different people in the past couple of weeks, both Christians for quite some time, have asked me uh, this question. Is the God of the Old Testament really the same as the God of the New Testament? I just want to briefly make one comment about that. And that is that the answer is yes, uh, 
But the caveat is that Yahweh, the Lord God of the Old Testament, is only fully revealed in Christ in the New Testament. Therefore, we cannot understand the Old Testament without the New, and it's impossible to understand the New Testament without a familiarity with the Old, partly because the New Testament quotes from the Old time and time again, as we shall see as we continue in uh, Peter's letter alone. And as one of my mentors once neatly put it to me, he was a very poetic man, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. So let's just look then at, uh, in verse 8, at Peter's quotation from uh, Isaiah 8, 14. He says, quotes that as a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now, why does this stumbling happen to these people? Well, Peter writes there, it's because they disobey the apostolic message. They disobey the word of God. It's not that they don't hear it, and it's not that they don't understand it. Indeed, the very reason why the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders sought to kill Jesus was because they did understand his words. They knew that he was talking about them as the tenants and himself as the owner's son and declaring himself to be Isaiah's living stone. And they were not prepared to change their ways in the light of that understanding. So they stumbled over the rock in verse 80. And then Peter adds, which is also what they were destined for. Now that phrase is often something um, uh, relating to a theme that puzzles us. And we touched on it in the very first verse of this letter in the sermon four weeks ago in the reference to the elect. Now I'm only going to ask just one question here about this concept of being destined, if this really troubles you. And I know it did me for a very long time. If God is truly the high and lofty one, who knows the end from the beginning and inhabits eternity, how could he not know the destiny of all people? including those who will stumble and fall. But there's another important perspective that we need to have on this. And Psalm 113 at 9, verse 16, says of God, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God? The psalmist finds the revelation of the all-knowingness of God is precious rather than perplexing to him, wonderful rather than worrying. And if he could come to be at rest in it and even revel in it, then so must we. 
And we can have this peace of mind because Peter writes here in verse 6 that to those who believe, this stone is precious. It's not a cause of stumbling at all. Though Jesus was rejected by mankind, this verse reassures us that those who put their trust in him, the cornerstone, will ultimately not be put to shame as Christ himself was when he bore our sins on the cross. On the contrary, Peter tells us, we are being built together as living stones on the foundation stone of Christ into a spiritual house, the family of God. Our identity is to be God's people together. And this really matters, particularly in our time, at least in the West, when the church is becoming increasingly marginalized and regarded as uh, an irrelevance. It is precisely at that point that we as God's people need to draw near to Christ and keep on drawing near. And to our fellow believers, we also need to draw close if we are to remain strong in faith. So let's ask ourselves, are we connected to Christ? And if so, have we connected with Christ this week? And are we connected together with other living stones? And if we are, who are they in the local church here? Now, of course, it's impossible for us to connect with everyone in a church of this size But we all need to connect closely and walk deeply with at least one or two other people who are not in our natural family. So ask yourself, what living stone am I being built closely with? And how can I relate better to them in God's house to further God's purposes, both in Banstead and in the wider world? Now this brings me to the second main theme of this um, passage. And that is that as well as being built together into a spiritual household, God's people have been chosen by God to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Now what does this mean? Well in Exodus 19 verse 6 God, through Moses, tells the people of Israel exactly what Peter tells uh, the church here. Uh, Moses says, you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation in that verse. And Paul echo, uh, Peter echoes that language here. And all four descriptions that um, uh, occur in the uh, verse uh, 9, they're the holy nation the chosen people, the royal priesthood, God's special possession, all four of these are describing uh, the same entity. They're all different facets of the identity that we now have in Christ. And that's why I think Peter feels quite free to refer to a holy priesthood in verse 5 and a royal priesthood in in verse 9, because they're all four descriptions uh, indicating that just like Christ himself in verse 4 was chosen by God, those who believe in him 
are also chosen and precious to God. We are a royal priesthood. And what is our purpose then as this holy kingdom of priests? Well, Peter tells us in verse 4 that it is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Now, what are these spiritual sacrifices? Well, in one sense, the moment that we become Christians is the start of a whole life of sacrifice. And I'm really grateful for our preacher's group that met in the the week that uh, reminded me of that. And uh, somebody made that comment, and I thought that was was really very, very helpful. The whole of our Christian lives, in one sense, is one of sacrifice. And last Sunday evening, Andrew Evans was unpacking Paul's teaching in Romans 12, uh, where Paul urges uh, us in verse 1, on account of God's mercies, to offer our bodies to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And he adds this, giving of our lives over to God is, in Paul's words, a spiritual service of worship. We are no longer to be self-centered, but to seek first the kingdom of God, to serve him and his precious people. And in verse 5, Paul emphasizes the same point as Peter about being built together, where he says there in Romans, in Christ we who are many are one body, and each member belonging to the other. Drawing near, being built into a spiritual household. But whereas Paul's emphasis on Romans 12 is on uh, gifts to be exercised to build up fellow Christians, I think Peter's emphasis on the role of priestly ministry here is a slightly different one. And in verse 9, he says the purpose of our nation priesthood is that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In a similar vein, Hebrews 13, 15 says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So confessing his name, acknowledging that we are are part of his family, is a component of our spiritual worship or sacrifice. Now up until last month, I could not sadly remember having a really good conversation about Jesus with an as yet unbeliever since the start of uh, the summer of 2020. But a few weeks ago, I went to the theater with uh, a large group of family members, and and one of them had brought along uh, a friend I hadn't met. And uh, I sat next to them uh, during the performance. And when the curtain came down at the interval, he turned to me and said, Do you believe in the afterlife? Now, I didn't need to be um, a sort of, 
you know, a spiritual wizard to see that there might be an opportunity to talk about Jesus here. So, so uh, praise God, I seized it. And I said to him, yes, actually I do, because I know someone who came back to the dead, from the dead to tell us what it was like. And I could, I could see him you know, looking at me out of the corner of his eye. And, and I could see that he was actually really spiritually hungry. And we spent the whole interval talking about um, uh, Jesus. Uh, I, I, I want more of that in, 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 in my life. Um, that's a wonderful, wonderful privilege of our priestly ministry as God's people to tell of how he's taken us out of darkness and brought us into his uh, light. And if we are praying, and I, and I actually had prayed that day, um, you know, you want to lead me to someone I can have a conversation with. And, you know, when we pray, um, God often answers according to his grace. It's a huge and wonderful, wonderful privilege. But praise is more than just declaring God's mighty works. It is also adoring God simply for who he is. Psalm 106 verse 2 says, Who can declare the mighty deeds of the Lord or fully declare his praise? And the Song of Songs in the Old Testament is perhaps the most extensive book of adoration of the king for who he is. Some verses from chapter 1. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Take me with you. Come, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And we will delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Do we pray like that? Do we adore God? Well, I have to admit that um, I preach this from aspiration rather than achievement. But Edmund Clowney, an American theologian, uh, writes more from experience than I. and uh, He's well worth uh, an extended quote. He writes, The worship of God consists not only in hearing and responding to his word... It finds its burning focus in lifting the name of God in adoration. This function of the priesthood cannot be delegated. God's praise must rise from the lips of all his people. If the singing and speaking forth the praise of God are viewed as mere preliminaries to the sermon, then the meaning of worship has been lost. God's praise must rise from the lips of his people, he writes. That made me remember the words of Jesus when the religious leaders of his day tried to silence those who sought to praise him on his entry to Jerusalem. If these remain silent, the very stones will cry out. As we come into land, in verse 10 here, Peter uh, reminds us once again that we are um, the people of God, just in case we had forgotten it. 
And then he gives us yet another reason for praise, that we have received mercy. And that's a wonderful thing to, to receive. And the God who declares, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, is not some petty tyrant in a tin pot dictatorship making arbitrary decisions about who will live and who will die. He is the mighty Lord of the universe, the judge of all the earth who will do right. And the real question is why should he show mercy to any of us at all? But he has. And so, as the people of God, let us declare his praises in both witness to him and worship of him and make this our priority each day while we still have the freedom to do it. Let's pray together. Merciful Lord, help us, we pray, to increasingly declare your praise in worship and tell others of your mighty acts. While we have the liberty in our country to, uh, to do that, help us to draw close to you daily and to become lost in wonder love and praise so that the song has it, we will be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And help us to live lives that are truly spiritual worship to you. For your holy name's sake we ask it. Amen. I'm going to invite